It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, coming in 3, 2, 1. Astronomy Cast, episode 568, in situ resource utilization. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. We sound particularly uh, cheery for the apocalypse. It's a Friday. It's a- I'm going to go in the yard and burn things later today. Yeah. We've, we've definitely moved from the existential crisis, the deep grief phase of this process to the to more, we've moved to the marathon portion where we are settling in for what is probably going to be months, if not maybe years of on and off again, restrictions, lockdowns and, and quarantines. And, Although it is still terrible out there, and please, everybody, um, you know, we, have, through this collective sacrifice, have made a dent in many countries on the spread of this disease. Now we have to lock it in. Keep it up. Yeah. Keep it up. Yeah. We have to lock this in. We have to lower the 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 rate that it is transmitting to other people to below one and and wipe it out of existence. Yeah. And and New Zealand's already succeeded. So so there is this is possible. It requires a massive combination of testing and quarantine and tracking down contacts, but that little island nation or two island nation proved it is possible. Yep. Now, a lot of places out there are lifting their shelter-in-place warnings. Well, you're about to be in trouble in three weeks, and we're very yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. So so even if the shelter-in-place has been lifted, keep an eye on the spread. Remember how it was spreading back in the yeah. beginning, and just think about that as well. And, and yeah. it's sort of like the responsibilities on each one of us to ensure the safety of everybody around us. So, yeah. So take those with a grain of salt. The key to surviving in space will be learning how to live off the land. Instead of carrying all your fuel, water, and other resources from Earth, extract them locally at your destination. It's called in-situ resource utilization. And if we could figure this out, it'll change everything. All right, Pamela, um, you know, we should do a bit of a history lesson here when we talk about how essentially we couldn't have done exploration here on earth without in situ resource utilization it's the key exactly yes and and it is it has actually reshaped our world nowhere more so than the island of iceland <laughs> uh, it it turns out that ships sailing ships require masts and masts like to break and way back when the great explorers of the northern oceans the vikings came across this place with amazing forests and tall strong trees and they settled in and took the masts they needed and carried on with their 
massive trade. We we always highlight the the pillaging that occurred, but it turned out these were also traders, hunters, gatherers, and um, well. Iceland was once a greatly forested land, and now it has almost no forests, and it's leading to vast amounts of erosion. Yeah. So be careful what you take. Yeah, it's like, interesting. I mean, they when when you're there in Iceland, there's there are no trees. Right. There's That's uh, there, the, the Vikings. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's the occasional tree, like a person might have a tree in their, um, you know, in their yard. But apart from that, apparently there are some now some efforts to attempt to reforest the island, and in theory, you know, give it another couple hundred years, and there will be forests on on Iceland yeah. again. But clearly, they found what they needed. They were able to survive by cutting down all those trees. Thanks. So apparently, I mean, this is not the lesson that we want to learn, you know. But but the point being that the only way they were able to survive was the fact that there were resources that they could use, trees they could cut down, animals they could hunt. Fish they could eat, things, places they could grow things, they were able to survive in what is a very hostile place. Yes, and and this is how we have systematically explored our world. Uh, again, another amazing example of the past is the Polynesians. They knew exactly where all the little islands dotting the South Pacific were located and had amazing celestial navigation skills and knew if they went from here to here, there would be fresh water when they got to the next place. There would be food. There would be the things necessary to carry on their carrying on as they moved throughout massive areas of the ocean. And so when we look at the history of space exploration plans, when you look at, say, the moon missions, they carried everything, every calorie that the astronauts would need was carried up from the surface of the Earth. Every drop of water, every every molecule of oxygen that they were going to breathe, everything had to be carried yeah. completely from Earth and then all the way back from the moon. And back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, people were planning missions to Mars that would be the same thing, carry everything to Mars and then carry it to be able to survive on the on the surface of Mars and carry out a mission. And every... It's not feasible. The math just kept breaking. Yeah. And, and this is where it gets really interesting to me just what is considered in situ resource utilization. Basically, if you don't have to take something with you, that means you are utilizing it where you go. And if you don't have to carry all of your own energy with you, so say you have solar panels. Yeah. Those solar panels count as an in situ resource utilization. And it's something that doesn't work everywhere in the solar system because we have places, the outer solar system, for instance, where you really need to have those radiothermal generators, those nuclear fuel cells. Whereas on Mars, unless you're Curiosity, they just solar power away and that's a form of in-situ resource utilization. The sun is in-situ. Right, right. And so, and, but I mean, it's more than you talk about the power. Yeah. Let's say you don't have yeah. to carry your gasoline to Mars, although that's not right. the right exact example. Um, but say you don't have to carry your hydrogen, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. You don't ha also don't have to carry the fuel to carry the liquid hydrogen, liquid exactly. oxygen. And so there is this huge multiplier for every kilogram that you're trying to carry to the surface of Mars. 
many kilograms of fuel yeah. of propellant to get you there. And we first started seeing people think hard about how do we separate the resources we need from the rocks of other worlds in the 1960s. And this started to crop up in novels like The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which if you haven't read is something that is absolutely required reading in modern times. And in that novel, they were shipping grain seeds from Earth up to the moon, utilizing human byproducts and water that was found in the regolith of the moon to grow vast crops that were then shipped back to Earth, which was actually effectively shipping the water from the moon down to Earth. Right. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. I mean, I think that is probably infeasible. Like there will never be a time when, when it will make economic sense to grow things on the moon and then ship them back to earth. But the, but, but growing things on the moon to feed the people on the moon, that makes a mountain of sense. And I think it's exactly, I think even it's you could arguably say that, that space exploration will never be self-sustaining until we have in situ resource utilization. Exactly. And <laughs> for, for people, I'm, let's leave this in. The dog is, is uh, licking Pamela while she's attempting to record the con- the podcast. Oh. Such a professional. <laughs> so here we have to figure out. So what do different places have to offer us? And, The three big things that folks are constantly trying to figure out is uh, the oxygen water situation. I lump that as one thing because if you have water, you have oxygen. The other thing they're constantly trying to figure out is, well, how do we build ourselves a shelter? Can we find a way to live without having to take our habitats with us? And the third thing that, well, if you want to come back becomes an issue is... Can you make rocket fuel wherever it is that you're going? Because uh, you can't solar panel your way off the surface of a gravitational planet. So, so let's break down, you know, you talked about these things here. Let's talk about some of these core resources that we use a ton of. Like, it's okay to bring um, your 3D printer from Earth. It's okay to bring yes. your uh, communication system from earth, but let's talk about some of the big bulk things. And so the number one thing I think is just going to be propellant fuel for your ship. So where does this come from and and how could we try to make it? What is it? Yeah. (laughs) There's so many different kinds of fuel, um, here on earth. We're often looking at liquid oxygen systems. Um, but Elon Musk is actually talking about on Mars, creating a what he calls methanolox. This is a fuel system that is made of methane, CH4, and is created through melting of the water ice that can be found in the regolith and the poles of Mars and mixing it with carbon drawn out of the atmosphere of Mars, mixing it together in the right ways, and you end up with methane that... Um, using hand waviness that he said in the telecon related to this announcement. These are details to discuss offline. He yeah. actually said that. Right. But the, um, I mean, the process of, of creating methane, 
out of the atmosphere is well understood. It's been yes. done for a hundred years that you take water, break it apart, use the hydrogen, use carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, mix them together. De- again, details, look at them offline. The, the bacteria in our gut does this naturally. <laughs> right. yeah, I think it's called the Sabatier process. But anyway, the point being that you can do this, no problem, um, and produce methane. The key, and this was, I mean, the big, big problem always was that they weren't sure if there was going to be accessible water on Mars. If you don't have water, then you don't have the hydrogen to, to, to make the methane with. And so you'd have to and bring the hydrogen. But now we know the water is there. Well, and accessible remains the key word. Yes. Uh, one, one of the issues that, that has led to no ending stream of crank emails is engineers who believe they have found the most efficient way to somehow strip lunar rock of its water. The minerals of the moon, many of the minerals on Mars have H2O locked into the lattices, the matrices of the rocks. And if you tear apart the molecules in the minerals, you can liberate water. This was particularly visible when uh, Elcross bombarded the moon back in 2009 and sent that plume of material up above the surface, allowing us to sample and study exactly what is the mineralogy of the moon made of. Right. But getting that water out is a highly energetic process. And if you're already strapped for energy... It doesn't help if you have to use massive amounts of energy to get the water out, to use the water to make methane, to make your rocket fuel. (sighs) That's just kind of not a useful process. Mm -hmm. So, but even just like if you just have water, you split it Mm -hmm. into hydrogen and oxygen, and that is the fuel system that was in the space shuttle. You've got... Right? So so just if if you just have water and energy to for the hydrolysis yeah. electrolysis, sorry. Electrolysis. Electrolysis, yeah. yeah. Then you can you can break them up and you've got yourself fuel. So there's tons of tons of them. Um there's other ideas like have you seen this idea of like a steam powered rocket? Yeah, I just I I know the gravity is a whole lot less out there. Yeah, so you so you take in you take in water, you, you don't try to break it up into its hydrogen and oxygen, mm-hmm. but you then heat it up, superheat the water, and then you can then spray it out of your rocket just as a propellant, as steam. Right. And it causes it, and it provides a level of thrust. And it requires a simpler, you know, you don't have to be storing cryo. And, and the way this works is the massive volume change that takes place between water and steam. Water takes up a whole lot less volume than steam does. And so as that escaping, expanded, now gas form of water flies out the thrusters of your rocket um, up and away, yeah. uh, it's just not as efficient as right. other means. right. But it, but but what it lacks in that it makes up for in simplicity. 
You just that's dump water in, that's heat true. it up, spray it out. You've got yourself a thruster. Um, so, so, so there's many different ways, and I mean, we could do a whole show just about manufacturing propellants yes. um, in various in situ, and and that accounts for the vast majority. So once that gets cracked, uh, you know, imagine you can refuel which we talked about last week, just how important that'll be if you're able to refuel. What other resources will we use that we'll be able to find out there in space? So so we have the the water that we need water or we die. It's kind of a thing. Um, and then, of course, there's the oxygen that we need to breathe. And again, if you have water, you have the oxygen we need to breathe and you have rocket fuel. So... Those all tie together. The other big thing is just the ability to build the stuff that you live in. You take your 3D printer, but you need stuff to feed the 3D printer. And there's some really cool research that has gone into trying to figure out how to use lunar dust to build stuff. And one of my favorite breakthroughs, and I'm sure I've brought up dozens of times at this point here on Astronomy Cast, is some researchers in Tennessee a number of years ago figured out that if you hit lunar regolith with just the right wavelength of microwave radiation, it gets melty and will solidify. Yeah. So you can take all this dust. And essentially, if, if you've ever seen a street cleaner with all of the little swirly bits on the bottom, replace those with microwave transmitters. Roll along and just create your road behind you. That's really cool. Yeah, there, there's a great, <laughs> amazing. Uh, there's a great photograph that someone did. I think it was from the European Space Agency. They had a pile of simulated lunar regolith, so lim- mm-hmm. lunar soil that yeah. they had processed. I think they had heated it up and had boiled away uh, certain parts of the of the. Of, gotten rid of the oxygen out of the stuff because when you look at this stuff it's actually like uh iron oxide or magnesium yeah. oxide or aluminum oxide like it's all or silicon oxide like it's it's essentially these various minerals bound up with oxygen you want the oxygen but you're left over and so they showed you because the oxygen is a lot less dense than these metals you bake one of these piles of 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 lunar regolith and you end up with a t- with a pile of metal Right, that you can then use to feed into your 3D printer. And we have 3D printers now that yes. will print metal, that will print titanium, that will print iron, that will print aluminum, no problem. So you can imagine just you take lunar regolith, dump it into your 3D printer, and you just print girders on the moon to construct well, it, your it spacecraft. It can be even better than that. So one one of my quiet little fantasies is I've been keeping an eye on 3D printed houses. Uh, and these are often these gorgeous arcing structures that you can't really make any other way because you set your 3D printing machine in the center and it has an arm on a pivot that can go out to different distances. So everything that you do is some sort of an ellipse or an arc with a maximum radius that is whatever the length that arm can be. And they... 
can be in the center with all of their extruder material and then build around building up the these houses that look like they're straight out of a children's book. Uh, I don't know if you remember any of those children's books where you had the big round blobby characters that would basically lump mud around them and then that was how they built their homes. That's funny. No, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Clearly we had different childhoods. It's all right. It's all right. Um, but uh, we can essentially go to the moon and build our our little regolith miner. I'm thinking spice miner from Dune here. I read way yeah. too much science fiction. Or not and, enough. Whatever it or is. Or not enough. Yeah. And, and plop it down and have it digging up stuff from the center, processing it through like a reverse collimation tower, extruding it out the arm, and then just building these arcing facilities all around out of nice thick blocking radiation regolith and this this might be the one way that we can readily build things with thick enough walls to keep us safe that's really cool um so we've so we've got our propulsion our breathing our liquid we've got our we've got the building materials to build our homes to build potentially things that we may want out of metal. Um, What about eating? Because again, we have to carry all of this food from earth. So can we do that locally? This, you have to carry your own seats that just flat out. There's nothing already there. Yeah. There are certain lichens that it's thought might be able to grow in the wilds of Mars the way Mars is today. But that's not a good diet. No, no. Unless you're uh, a reindeer. Yeah, even then, I'm not sure it would grow enough that that would be a good diet. So you're really looking at asking instead, is there anything that can be done to the existing soils to make it so that you can use the soils to grow plants? With the moon, we have this problem that moon rock is so sharp, it will shred up seed in this case. It's it's unweathered, crushed glass. Right, right. But so so you're not growing things on the moon. Well you could you could you could throw it in the equivalent of a tumbler, rock tumbler. Yeah, that that takes a whole lot of energy. Mm-hmm. So I foresee more a several generations of composting going on. Right. And once you do enough composting, you're probably okay. But with Mars, it looks like Mars had this amazing liquid past with oceans that would have tumbled down a lot of the sands on Mars to make them not as sharp and awful. Right. And so here what we see is soil that, first of all, has perchlorates in it that will kill anything. Right. So you need to wash it. get rid of those. Yeah. yeah, wash it. Get rid of the perchlorates. Um, and then you just need to add in the nutrients. And what is fascinating to me is we don't even know how much nutrient we need to add in because we keep getting more and more evidence that there's already organics in the soils on Mars. And so the question becomes, once you get rid of the perchlorates, which is one heck of a problem, what? how bad is it? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm hoping that it's like trying to grow things in dirt found in Death Valley, which is really just gross sand yeah um 
it's not going to be like trying to grow something here where I'm in the Midwest where you sneeze and your sneeze is now sprouting <laughs> things you don't want to think about. Um, our, our front yard already has knee-high weeds yes. three weeks later. Yeah, same here. Uh, but there, there is the potential that we can use the soil without huge amounts right. of modification. We don't have to tumble it the way we right. do with the moon. It's just cool. But, but even if we don't use necessarily the local regolith, I mean, NASA has gotten really good at hydroponics yes. and aquaponics. So, so you can grow your material in a, in a medium. You can grow it just in, in water with, with lots of uh, additional nutrients added to it. So that technology has actually been very well worked out. And I guess when you think about it, it's back to your very original point at the beginning, which is that it's really just sunlight. That you're just yes. turning sunlight into human mass, right? Yeah. And th there are limits to hydroponics. You can't grow an apple tree hydroponically because its root system won't have anything to grip onto. But I'm now going to Google um, for a hydroponic apple tree right now. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, so, so if you can figure out how to create a diet that isn't just nutritionally satisfying, but is also satisfying to the soul. I mean, we call food soul food for a reason, uh, comfort food. If you can figure out that combination of things, um, I, I hope to someday see domed cities on Mars that have perhaps only in the occasional column of soil, those trees that... Yeah we're trained to see growing and sure get the rest of your food through hydroponics. Yeah. But we need those traits. Uh, I mean, there was a interesting study that came out. Some people were looking at what it might take and they saw like essentially tunnels underneath the surface of Mars where yeah. you have, you know, these tunnels go for kilometers and they would be filled with people growing. They would be, they'd be filled with plants that are growing hydroponically because that keeps them safe from the radiation. You can control the environment and I forget the exact amount, but you need some set amount of square meterage per human being to feed them. And it's, it's a lot, but it's not a ludicrous amount. So, so let's just sort of, you know, we've already knocked off the vast majority of the mass yeah. that we need to carry. If we're going to try and survive on a place like the moon or Mars, and we're able to handle all of these things, we've got most of what we need. But we're not full, true self-sufficiency yet. We're still going to rely on stuff from, from Earth. So what right. remains and what maybe can we do to, to solve those last problems? Well, we, we don't have mining capacity on other worlds. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to rely on technology to live in other environments. And this means you need rare Earth elements, which... I guess, rare Mars, rare moon elements. We need rare elements. We need the copper for this, the silicon for that, that is of the premium grades. Right. So, so this is where you need to send all those base metals, whether, whatever form you can, as well as the fabrication equipment. But the key is you don't have to send everything already fabricated as we move into better and better printing mm -hmm. CNC machines, um, 
we need the ability to build things up and cut them down. Yeah. If you have those two machines and you have the base materials, then you can manufacture everything you need. So you can almost imagine um, hopefully someday having our little robot miners out there tearing through the asteroids to find what's needed. Yeah, you can kind of, but you can imagine, say, you need a bulldozer on Mars. And right. so you send the uh, the bulldozer, the key components that can only be manufactured on Earth, and then the rest is instructions for the Martian 3D printers. And so they take exactly. the they take the central processing unit and some of the key uh, hydraulics or whatever it is, and then they print out all of the treads and the and the bucket and all that kind of stuff out of local resources, and then they, they build these things. And so you can imagine getting a tiny little care package that is a bulldozer <laughs> that you then have well, to you know, spool up your 3D printer and build the rest of it. And, and this is going to usher in a day where we have to think, completely differently about manufacturing, even here on Earth. And we're starting to see hints of what this will look like. We we have a Glowforge here in our house. We don't have a 3D printer yet because I've seen the carnage a 3D printer can wreck. Um, I'm I'm only adult enough right now for Glowforge. I, I, we, old, we owned one and we sold it because it was just too complicated and too much of a right. mess. So, yeah. I, yeah. I'm not detail-oriented enough. Yeah. Um, but... There, there's a day in our future that is coming. We're already with our Glowforge. We can look up patterns for things and we'll spend $5 for the pattern or just innovate something ourselves. I'm using a teleprompter to record uh, the daily space that was cut entirely out of acrylic on our Glowforge and just slotted together beautifully. <laughs> That's and amazing. It's a $200 teleprompter made with 20 bucks of acrylic and a multi hundred dollar glowforge we're not going to talk about how expensive the glowforge was right but but we use it for so many amazon boxes now actually occasionally have purposes where we make stuff out of them you slice them up and things that i would normally have been purchasing before like uh, the cardboard that I use to pad my paintings when I mail them out, instead of buying the the cardboard cake rounds that I was buying before, I'm just taking the best cardboard shipping boxes I have that have nice shiny on the inside, cutting those up. Yeah. And that, so so copyright starts to change when you're buying the patterns instead of buying the right. thing. But you can definitely imagine this future where where almost everything can yeah. be manufactured remotely and you're down to just a few key components that does require a chip fabrication lab to actually build. And then we will be very close to a lot of these places being completely self-sufficient. It's amazing to think about that future. And and one of the great people who's thought about it is Cory Doctorow. And all of you out there, if you haven't read his books, his short story, Print Crime, is is one of my favorite short stories. And it's only about two pages long. So it's a really short, yeah. short story. Um, check out his books and start to get insights on the real world near future potential of these devices. Yeah. And if you think this stuff is science fiction, I mean, it mostly is. But um, the, <laughs> the Perseverance rover is going to have an experiment on board that is designed to see if it can produce fuel on the surface of Mars out of 
atmospheric oxygen. So stay tuned. Yeah. Pamela, do you have some names for us this week? I do. As always, we are here thanks to the generous contributions of people like you. And I just want to say, I, I know a lot of you are struggling right now. I see it in the donation levels that have dropped. I see it in the people who've disappeared after years. We're here for you. You come first. Yes, we, we do take, take your donations and turn them into pay for people who turns it into food for people. We're going to get by no matter what. We're here for you. And those of you who are still contributing, oh my goodness, we are so grateful. And I'm just going to read some of your names. So thank you to Kshartan Sferi, who someday, please, please, please tell me the pronunciation of your name. Um, to Sinai, to Stephen Shewater, to Bill Hamilton, to Joshua Pearson, to Frank Trippin, to Richard Riviera, to Alexis, to Thomas Stepstrop, to Sylvan Westby, to Jeff Collins, to Arctic Fox, to Brian P. Cox, to Merrick Viergani, to Nate uh, Detweiler, to Brian Gregory, to Ron Thorson, to Philip Walker, to Matt Rucker, to Dave Lackey, to Kevin Nitka, to Cooper, and to Chris Schauerhofer. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next week, Pamela. See you later. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.